Good morning again. And uh, kids, as you go, you're going to learn about the golden calf again. So y'all go ahead and filter out. And uh, so kids, you need to know, what does a golden calf, Jaden, have to do with Jesus? You've got to figure that out. And your mom and dad, they'll ask you, Jonathan, Jonathan already knows the answer. Maybe you can teach a lesson. I don't know. No? All right. Okay, we'll find out. Well, uh, good morning to you again. I'm going to pray for the kids in just a second. But let me remind you uh, to the church family. So we've been learning a lot about church planting, haven't we? As we've studied the book of Thessalonians. Paul is going around after the resurrection of Christ. He's been ordained as apostle. He's going out. And what's he doing? How does he respond as a Christian? Is to go out, preach the gospel, inform churches. So as to declore, declare the glory of God to the nations and build up those saints. And so the work of the church is to plant churches, to start churches, and to strengthen those churches that are already there. And one of the ways this church does that is by having the church planting weekender, where we will bring in some 50-plus people from all over the country. And uh, they'll be with us for three days, November 10th to the 12th. And there'll be some other pastors coming to train them so that uh, through that collective time together that more churches would be planted and more churches would be strengthened, that Christ would be glorified and healthier Christ-treasuring churches would be all over the United States and beyond. And so we need your help in that Restoration Church. And so we've still got some slots. Thanks to those of you who signed up. We still have some slots of ways in which you can just be there to serve these guys and gals so that they might uh, just be able to take in the event easily. So I hope you'll sign up for that. You can look for an email that's been sent to you. Look on the app. And those are ways to do that. Let me pray for the kids. Let me pray for us. And we'll dive in. God, thank you for your word, that you are not a God that is silent. You speak to us in creation, in general, and you speak to us especially about who you are in your word, through the voice of the word of Christ. And so now, God, help us to see the importance of this gospel, that we might stand for it, preparing for that fateful day when Christ returns. And we stand before him face to face. Ready us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Gospel doctrine plus gospel culture equals gospel hope amidst afflictions and temptations. That's what we're going to see this morning. Gospel doctrine plus gospel culture equals gospel hope amidst afflictions and temptations. We're going to see that this morning. So the doctrine or the truth of the good news of Jesus Christ, that gives shape to the lives of the those that are in that gospel. We're calling that the gospel culture. It gives shape to that such that that truth plus that shape plus that culture equals a hope in it when Christ returns where we'll stand before him face to face. And so let me give you an example of this kind of idea, just to kind of get us thinking in the direction of it, right? If I were to say that Disney World has a doctrine, right? We're going to call it the the doctrine of Disney World, right? The doctrine is it's the happiest place on earth, right? Therefore, uh, the people of Disney's world have therefore created a, a kind of world, a culture, if you were, if you will, of roller coasters and good and expensive food, Right? 
and also music and entertaining shows. And they have decidedly not chosen to build a world, a park, a culture that has really mean employees and no trash cans and, you know, evil kinds of things and warfare happening in them. Right. And so it is the doctrine of Disney World that informs the culture of Disney World that then equals the happiest place on the earth. The message determines the outcome. Well, the same is true for the Christian. The doctrine of the gospel determines the culture of the people of the gospel, which will then produce the hope of the gospel amidst afflictions. Slide down there and look at verses 11 to 13. Look at that final prayer. And I want to ask this question. Why does Paul pray for abounding love for one another as the thing? That would, quote, establish their hearts blameless in holiness before God the Father at the coming of the Lord Jesus. Why is that the thing? Love for one another. Why is it that? And I'm going to argue that it's because he knows gospel doctrine plus gospel culture equals gospel hope. That's what we're going to see. Three points. Well, kind of really, yeah, three points this morning. Let's see. Here's, let's start with the concern, the concern, the concern. And this is the uh, verses one to five gospel doctrine. This is the gospel doctrine, right? Here's the concern, gospel doctrine, verses 1 to 5. Now, what we've been seeing, for those of us that, if you're new, we've been walking verse by verse through this letter. And what we've seen is that Paul has been documenting uh, his need to defend the authenticity of his ministry. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, these three guys, they planted, they started this church years, or actually just a, a less, than a, less than a year, less than six months probably before this letter is written. He's writing back to them, but because of persecution, they planted the church, because of persecution, they had to leave the city of Thessalonica, they had to run away. Uh, they had to get out of it. And so therefore, the enemies of the gospel come in there, the ones that were persecuting, and they're likely saying to this little church that is formed, those dudes didn't love you. Those dudes don't like you. They were just into you to get money out of you. They were just into you to to, to get glory out of you, to build a name for themselves. They don't care about you. Their message is false. They are false. And Paul's coming in going, that's not true. We do love you. You're real. I'm real. We're real. The gospel's real. And again, he says again and again with great desire. We wanted to come to see you face to face. But, Paul says, Satan had hindered them from coming. So, That's where we kind of were. That's summing us up. So since they could bear it, look at chapter 3, verse 1. Since they could bear it no longer to be away from them. Paul says that they send Timothy back to them. Why? To establish and exhort you in your faith. That no one would be, this is key, moved by these afflictions. Moved is the operative word there. There's a faith that they don't want them to move from because of the afflictions. Verse 5, and he sends Timothy back to, quote, learn about their faith to fear for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. So Paul has one major concern that he is fearful would be brought about in two different ways or two related ways. One major concern. The concern is, is that they would be moved from believing and receiving the gospel message, gospel of Jesus Christ. He was concerned that they would move from that gospel by these regular afflictions or by the tempter, so tempting them to move away from the gospel. That's the concern. They would move from believing the truth of the gospel, right, by the regularity of these afflictions and by the tempter. Uh, Because of so many afflictions and because of the tempter wooing them away from that gospel, how then does Paul intend to address his concerns about them moving? Well, his, his intent, the way in which he's going to address it, is by sending Timothy back. 
to them. We'll think more about why that was the solution in a moment. But for now, let's just pause and let's consider what I'm calling gospel doctrine. Right? Since Paul's concern was their moving from the gospel of Christ, we should then understand a very basic, very simple, very straightforward, easily understood point. Namely, that there is something that is the gospel and there's something that isn't. Right? It's just a basic point. He's concerned that they're going to move from the gospel. Therefore, we should understand, really simple point, there's something that is the gospel and there's something that isn't the gospel, such that he is concerned that they don't move from the thing that is the gospel to something that isn't. And he's talked, Paul has talked a lot about the gospel in this letter, this short letter. Look back at chapter 1, verse 5. Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. Chapter 2, verse 2, with, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God uh, in the midst of much conflict. Chapter 2, verse 4, we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. By the way, notice that definite article, the gospel. There's something that is and isn't. Chapter 2, verse 8, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. Chapter 2, verse 9, for you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked with you night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you, what? The gospel of God, right? Then here in chapter 3, verse 2, calling Paul a God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ. And so when Paul planted this church, when he started this church, he went into the city, he preaches the gospel through their proclaiming a particular message about a particular God that was to be responded to in a particular way. And we see that, by the way, if we go back to Acts chapter 17, verses 2 to 3, there we get the story of how this church started. Acts 17, 2 to 3, we've thought a lot about this. It says there, and Paul went in, as was his custom, And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the gospel, is the Christ. And so guys, there's the doctrine of the gospel right there that was proclaimed to them that he didn't want them to move from, right? That gospel is that God is holy We are sinful. We are separate from her. You heard Brandy declare this, demonstrate this. Because God is holy and we are sinful, we're separated from God. We therefore stand rightfully under his judgment. And yet God in his infinite grace and mercy sent Jesus, his son, who is fully, fully God and fully man, who lived a sinless life. Therefore, he is uniquely able to atone, to pay for the sins of those that trust him, repent of those sins and trust him. And we know that that atonement, that truth, that good news that Jesus has taken the sin of those that trust him, we know that's true because on the third day he did something that nobody else can do. He rose from the dead to show that the check had cleared. That's the gospel, gospel doctrine. You have to repent of sins, trust in that. And as a result of the Thessalonians' reception of that gospel, they had become dear to Paul. Why? Because they had become dear to Christ. Because Christ had loved them by dying for them, raising for them, reigning for him. And so this, thus Paul's wanting to send Timothy to establish and exhort them in the faith because they're so loved by God, they're so loved by Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. They want to make sure amidst these afflictions they're doing all right and they're not moving away from the truth of that message. They send 
Timothy back. And so, guys, we in this church today need to understand these same things. We too must not only receive the gospel, but make an effort to stand in that gospel and not move from that gospel since, right, there's a thousand temptations to get us to move from it, to believe some different version of the gospel. And guys, this is a major concern of the New Testament apostles when they're writing. This is a major, one might say this was the concern of the New Testament. I'll give you one example. Jude, chapter three, Jude, verse three and four. Jude, by the way, half brother of Jesus, right? You know, how do you know that Jesus was the Christ? His brother thought he was the Christ. That's amazing. I know my brother. Ain't no way he is the Christ, right? (laughs) Jude understood Jesus was the Christ. And here's what Jude said about this gospel. He's writing to the church. He says, beloved. Don't don't ever get over that, by the way. Christians are beloved. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith, the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Why? And here here comes the afflictions and temptations. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation ungodly people who don't deny, that's not the word, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Right? So Jude's saying, Paul's saying, people are going to come into the church and they're not going to necessarily deny the gospel. They're going to try to pervert it and try to change it. And, and Jude's saying, Paul's saying, contend for that gospel. Hold on to it. Don't move from it. Don't pervert it. Which is why, by the way, guys, at Restoration Church, this is why we have a statement of faith that we're clear on, that we teach, that we uh, walk our members through. This is why we put so much emphasis on preaching and teaching the word and letting the word be the authority, not me. This is why we have a covenant membership and restorative church discipline. This is why we have community groups, dinner and discipleship, Sunday morning uh, uh, teachings, and why we encourage you. This is why we have a bookstall that we put good books in. Uh, This is why we encourage you guys to get together to talk about Jesus and hold each other accountable, right? Because we do not wrestle, as Paul says, against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the principalities that are laboring to do what? To get us to move from the gospel truth of it and to pervert it into some sensualized message, sensualized message. And how is it they intend to do that? How is it, right, the demons, the world, even our flesh, how is it they intend to get us to move from gospel doctrine? How is it they intend to do that? Well, in this passage, the concern that they would move is by afflictions and temptations, afflictions and temptations. And Paul talks about afflictions a lot. Look at verse four. These afflictions are the things that are concerning that's going to get him to move. He says that uh, these uh, afflictions, that these afflictions, that they were destined for them. How about that? They were destined to be afflicted. Which is why he says, this is so important, he kept telling them beforehand, before they suffered, which is why he kept telling them beforehand that they were going to suffer. And he says, it has come to pass, they are suffering as they know. I'm imagining, right, the church is going, yeah, yeah, he got that right. Yeah, totally. And so Paul and his boys are with these guys for like three to four weeks. I want you to think about that. And his message is, we kept telling you about the fact that you're going to suffer. They're with him for three to four weeks. 
Paul and his boys with these guys, and part of their Christianity Explored class is, you're going to suffer. Which made me wonder a couple things this week about our own practices of evangelism and discipleship in America and the church. Made me wonder a couple things. First off, how much are we doing this as the foundational aspects of our evangelism and discipleship? If Paul is spending three to four weeks and he says he keeps on telling them, here's the gospel, you're going to have to suffer for it. That's just the basic, he's doing this all the time. How much are we in the church doing that? Tell him you're going to have to suffer for this gospel. And then second, related to that, how much are we telling this in our evangelism and in our discipleship with the youth of our churches? If all we present to the world and to our kids is this Jesus, right, that just affirms everything about them, that's going to die for them, forgive them of all of their sins, and they get eternal life, why would they not want that? Who wouldn't? And if that's the gospel we're message, we're telling them, not emphasizing the need to turn from sin, emphasizing the need to know that you're going to have to suffer amidst life, amidst following Jesus. We're not emphasizing that. Doesn't it make sense that when they get to college, they peace out on the church? Wouldn't that make a lot of sense? Jesus told us from the beginning, guys, this is all through the Bible. Jesus said, in this world, you What's the word? Will have tribulations. Jesus said, blessed are those, blessed are those who are persecuted. Those are Jesus' words. Jesus said, you must hate father, mother, brother, sister to be my disciple. Jesus said, you must pick up your cross, your execution device, and follow me. Jesus said, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. And of course, Jesus embodied all of this by being himself a sufferer for this gospel, right? He was mocked. He was beaten. He was crucified for no other reason than testifying to the truth of the gospel and who he was. Which then explains why Paul, after he, having been stoned within an inch of his life, in the book of Acts, chapter 14, it would have been before this incident in Thessalonica, He says to the church in Lystra, he literally beat within an inch of his life. They thought he was dead. They drag him back in and blood still coming down his head. Acts 14.22 says to this new church in Lystra to continue in the faith because it is through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. He writes to Timothy on another occasion when Timothy has now gone to the church in Ephesus. He writes to him in 2 Timothy 3.12. 12 and says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Peter, the apostle Peter, 1 Peter 4, 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial, circle this word, when it comes upon you to test you. As though something strange was happening. And then what he says next in verse 13 reminds us that the suffering, the afflictions that we go through as we trust Christ, it reminds us. That these sufferings, these difficulties, these afflictions are not just arbitrary things that we have to go to, go through, but they're actually gifts. The very next verse, 1 Peter 4, 13, but rejoice. He just got talking about don't be surprised by trials. Verse 13, the next verse, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. 
Paul speaks of suffering for the gospel in the same way as a gift. Philippians 1.29. For it has, he's writing to another church in Philippi. For it has been granted, that is graced, gifted. It has been graced, granted to you, that you, that you, to you, that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. And guys, this is so because, as the apostles teach, to suffer for the gospel is a gift because it is yet another way that we we picture our union with Christ. Right? You saw this in Brandy, right? She's picturing her union with Christ, death, burial, and resurrection. And so in our lives through suffering for Christ, and so in the same way we picture our union with Christ, which is a glory, we get to be identified with him. Gifts to be participating in afflictions. So gospel doctrine includes then not only our need to believe in the gospel, not only to include our needing to to believe in the truth that Jesus lived, he died, he rose, but also by our union with him, we picture his death and his resurrection and our baptism in our life together. We participate in sufferings. This is part of, by the way, this gospel culture I'm going to talk about in a second. Suffering. Part of this culture. And so, friends, Paul shares this. Jesus shares this. I'm sharing it with you this morning. Because we know that the power of of affliction is strong. I mean, right? Some of you that are not Christians, you're sitting here listening to me talk going, uh, Nathan, probably not the best time to be talking about this, right? Don't tell them that, Nathan. No, we're going to be honest with you. And the same way Paul emphasizes it, we're going to emphasize it. It's right through. It's on every page of Scripture. The power of affliction to get you to move from the truthfulness of the gospel. It's strong. Most people love the grace and the mercy and the love of Christ. But the second we get threatened or punched in the face, we lose sight of the allure of the gospel. We can compromise on the gospel. We can pervert it and find more comfortable places to live in this world so that we don't have to go through many afflictions and temptations so that they'll just go away. Guys, that was a temptation evidently 2,000 years ago. It's still a temptation today. Most of us have been tempted, right? I'm sure some of you in this room right now, you're being tempted to compromise because of some threat of affliction or current affliction to move from the truth of the gospel. But friend, you must not let your afflictions deter you from believing and hoping in the truth of Christ and his gospel. Don't move from the truth of the gospel, church family. Don't move. Satan hates the church because he hates the gospel. And he will tempt you by giving you all the worldly things. That's right. Satan will tempt you by giving you all the world thing, things you desire. Or he may tempt you or threat to, or, or, or tempt us as a church to, to, to be threatened by taking our jobs away or some other aspect of our lives. But we must hold true, firm to the truth of the gospel. That gospel doctrine. And resolve to not move from it. But then you ask, okay, well, how is it, how is it I can be strengthened? In it, to stay the course. That would be a good question you should be asking now. Like, okay, I see that we need to stay, we need to know the truth. We need to stand for this truth. Afflictions are coming. They're powerful. They're going to want us to move. So how, Nathan, can I be strengthened to stay in that? We've looked at the concern. We've begun to think about the solution, but let's think about it more clearly. Second point, the solution, what I'm calling gospel culture. Colon, verses 6 to 10. 
See, one of the concerns of the apostles was that there might be some who said that they believed the gospel but didn't live like it. In other words, they moved from gospel doctrine but were compromising on what I'm calling gospel culture. They claimed to have never moved from gospel doctrine. They would have signed off on the statement of beliefs. But because of affliction and temptation, they actually did move as evidenced by the fact that they didn't behave in a manner in keeping with that gospel. Again, I'm using the words gospel culture to define that. Culture meaning the way of life, the way of the gospel. One could have gospel doctrine, but lack the way of that gospel. And so the church needs not only to, to, not only to have true doctrine of the gospel, but also have the culture or the way of that doctrine so as to stand for it and not move from it. So going back to my introduction, if I had Disney's correct doctrine, right, I signed off on statement of beliefs to be the happiest place on earth, right, but then I built a Disney park that was mean-spirited, right, and had no trash cans, it was just a mess, we'd understand that even though I said that I signed off on Disney doctrine, the Disney culture I was missing, which means I somehow didn't understand it or just didn't want to live in light of it. And this might explain some of your experiences in Christian circles. People that maybe have, or churches that even have gospel doctrine, but they're either jerks or they're worldly. Maybe that's kind of confused you. They're missing. They might say, they might have, by confession, the culture, they might have the, the doctrine of the gospel, but they're missing the culture of the gospel, the manner or the way the gospel is to be applied to life. You say, Nathan, is this biblical? Yes, I'll give you one example. I think it's here in First Thessalonians, but I'll give you an example. Galatians 2.14. Remember, this is Peter that pulls away from the Gentiles when Jews show up. And Paul rebukes him in Galatians 2.14 by saying that his, circle this word, his conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. So he said, like, Peter believed gospel doctrine, but his conduct, his culture, gospel culture, was not working together. So, friends, it is not enough to, have, to say that you believe the doctrine of the gospel. We also need the culture of the gospel. Right? Jesus would, would use language like this, that you will know them by their fruits. James would use this language when he says you need to not only be, believe the word, but you need to be doers of the word. So part of gospel culture is receiving afflictions, but not moving from the gospel. And so here's the question. How can we stay the course and not move from the gospel and get out by staying inside of that gospel culture? How do we do that? What's Paul's answer? What aspect of gospel culture does Paul point to to get us to stay inside of gospel doctrine so that we would stand before Christ when he returns and be confident? What's the thing he's going to point at in 1 Thessalonians 3? Answer? Love for one another in that gospel. That's his answer. Take a look. Let's think about Acts 17, right? Missionary team comes in, and from the beginning, they're face to face, loving them with the truth, right? We can think back to chapter 2, when like, we, didn't be, we weren't a burden to you. We didn't get money from you. We just tried to love you and preach the gospel to you. Face to face, loving you, being around you. Look, think back to 1 Thessalonians 2.17. They wanted to see them. How? Face to face. 1 Thessalonians 3, 1 and 2. They were willing to be left behind so that Timothy would be face to face with them in order to establish and exhort them in the gospel. Here, 
6 to 10, chapter 3, 6 to 10, is all about, the whole thing is about loving one another face to face in the gospel, how that has resulted in their flourishing amidst trials and temptations. That's what 6 to 10 is all about. Right, Timothy, so what happens, Paul says, we're so longing to see you, we can't come to you, we're going to send Timothy back. Timothy goes back, Timothy comes back, and he shows back up to Paul, who's in Athens, or maybe Corinth at this point, and he's going, how's it going? What's going on back there in Thessalonica, at First Baptist Church Thessalonica, how's it going? And that's what verse 6 to 10 is back. It's going great, Timothy says. The first good thing that Timothy says to Paul, that he refers to, Paul writes in verse 6, not only that their faith was present, but their love was present. That they fondly remembered Paul and the crew and wanted to what? See them. So when they went back, they found that they not only believed gospel doctrine, but they were participating in gospel culture by suffering and loving the body of Christ through it. Wanting to see each other and help each other through it. And then look at how Paul responds. And I want you guys to notice all the one anothering language. Look at verse 7. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, they had stress and affliction, we have been comforted how? About you through your faith. So what's the solution to Paul's stress and affliction? Knowledge of the Thessalonians' faith amidst Affliction. The medicine for Paul and these dudes as they're going through stress and affliction was the knowledge that the church was holding fast. Verse 8. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. Right? So Paul and crew, they live. They're encouraged to keep going. They live insofar as they're having the knowledge that the church is holding firm to the gospel. Right? For we live if you are standing fast. Look at verse 9. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before God. Notice, right, at verse 10. As we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in the faith. It's all, everything in here is about the thing, afflictions, temptations everywhere. And everything is like, I'm looking at you and seeing y'all loving Jesus. That helps me. And then I want to help you do the same. We're going to help each other, right? All, just all of this. Slide down to verse 11 to 12. And here we come to the answer to that question that I asked at the beginning. Paul is concluding his introductory notes. Yes, he takes three chapters to do that. Some people are like, yeah, that sounds like Nathan's preaching, right? It takes him a while, right? He's concluding his introductory notes. After this, in chapter 4, he's going to get really practical. But he concludes it by not only telling them that he prays, but he shows them what he prays for them. And so he concludes by telling them not only that they pray, but he includes what they pray. And what he prays, guys, is a summation of all that he has just been telling them. He prays that amidst their afflictions... Uh, Their loving one another in the gospel will be the full and the final course that will, quote, establish their hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of the Lord Jesus with all the saints. Look at verse 11. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus, one anothering, direct our way to you, 
right? One anothering. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another. And he doesn't stop there. And for all, as we do for you. Just just every, right? Just one another, all of this. That's what he's praying. So that the church will not move from gospel doctrine. Temptations abound. Affliction, afflictions abound, right? God's going to do it. But what's the means of God doing it? Right, That solution that I'm calling on the ground, the specific means that he means to persevere, have, to have us to persevere in the faith is to have hope in our tangibly loving one another and the shape and the truths of the gospel and the doctrines that unites us. Gospel doctrine plus gospel culture equals gospel hope amidst afflictions. See, we would have expected Paul to pray something like this. Lord, I pray that amidst afflictions, they pray a lot so that they would then stand blamelessly. Lord, I pray that they would right, obey all of your commands, Jesus, so that they would stand blamelessly. Lord, I pray that they would memorize the Bible so that they would stand blamelessly. It's not what he prays. It's not what he says. Now, he believes those things, but that's not where he's putting the accent. He wants those things to happen, surely. But the thing that he prays for to make them realize their hope in the gospel at the return of Christ is one anothering in the gospel face to face. So now let's ask the next question. Why that? Why is that the thing? That's what I asked at the beginning. Why is that the thing? This one anothering in the gospel. Why is that the thing that he's praying for to make them stand blamelessly and holy before return of Christ? Well, it goes back to the very first sermon in this series. It goes back to the first verse in this letter. The reason why he prays this way is because of the triune God who is love. You remember those first words? Go back and look at them. They weren't just throwaway lines, guys. They're important. Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, he goes down and talk about the Spirit. Guys, listen, this is so important. God did not create the world because he was lacking something. God was and is full within himself. He has no weakness, no deficiency in himself, such that he would need to make a world to satisfy something in himself that he didn't have, unlike other monotheistic religions. God was complete in himself. God is all in all because God is love. How is God love? Because he's triune. Because he's Trinity, one God in three persons, forever loving each other. So he had no need, no deficiency, no weakness. Didn't need to make a world to kind of fill up what is lacking in his love cup. He was already full. So from before creation, the father was a father. Right? He didn't become a father. He always was father. And he was always father because the son was always son. From eternity, the Father was delighting in loving the Son. And the Son was always delighting in and loving the Father. As the Spirit happily anointed one another in that love, being loved Himself. So guys, when we think about Jesus as the Christ and the Son of God, right? we must think about those designations inside of the Trinity. Right? Jesus as Son means that He was and is the Son of the Father. 
Right? And Jesus Christ as Christ means that he's anointed, anointed by the Spirit, sent by the Father. Therefore, while there has been no temptations of God in the triune God, he has been, though, forever doing what? Loving one another in the truth of who he was, which gives him that holiness. And because they have been loving one another in these truths of holiness, they then have forever life inside of one another. They have loved one another so much that out of fullness, think of it like a cup, fullness of their love, right? It's spilling over to make creation. Not out of emptiness, God makes creation. Out of fullness, he makes creation. To, to have people enter into this eternal life-giving love. But, but, but we sinned, right? We traded God for idols. And we loved not him as he has for eternity, but we've loved other things. Loved idols. Loving ourselves. Therefore, we were cut off, separated from the eternal life-giving love of God. But God, y'all ready for this? Ephesians 2. But God being rich in mercy because of the what? Great love with which he loved us, his people. Even while we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with grace. By coming, how? Face to face. By sending his son face-to-face, and loving us through afflictions on the cross. In other words, the way that we are rescued from our sin and deadness and idolatry that was by the love of God coming to us in the form of the Son of God who participated in the culture of gospel suffering, right? He, he condescended from heaven, took on the form of a man, right? Clouded his glory. He was killed on the cross, the most horrendous of deaths, having been, and this was the worst thing, having been, the text says, forsaken by his father's love. The, that's, that explains why Gethsemane was so hard. He's always had the love of the father and he was about to be forsaken by it. So that the triune God working through Christ by the power of the spirit, we who believe might be saved and sanctified. How does all that happen? By love for one another through the gospel. Life came through God one another. If I can get a little graphic, we're all, we're all adults here in the room, right? How does life come to people inside the marital covenant? One another, right? You want another, life comes. That's a symbol. It was God's eternal love for one another that forever filled and animated and delighted himself. And so here's the transition, guys. And God, that's what he's been doing. He made us in his image, right? In our sin, God did what he's always done to bring about life. He loved the other. In this case, he loved the bride of Christ, his people. The father so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The son so loved the father that he died to gain his bride. The Spirit so loved the Father and the Son and the church that he, that he applies the truth of the gospel to the one that repents and believes. Therefore, guys, this explains why Paul prays what he does. That amidst the afflictions and temptations that abound in this young church, Paul prays that the church of the triune God would so cause them to do the same thing that God has been doing so that they would persevere and stand holy before him. That they would increase and abound in love for one, or, one another and for all. And in so doing, their hearts would be established blamelessly as they trusted in Christ before the triune God. He prayed that because it was the truth of the gospel wedded to the manner of the gospel, that's love for one another, that would then give them the hope in the gospel as they face trials and tribulations. Gospel doctrine plus gospel culture equals gospel hope. 
And so guys, we fight for the truth of the gospel. We understand we must suffer for that gospel as we are tempted to move away from it. And the way that we stand fast is by loving one another in the gospel. That's how. As we do, we then give firm hope of standing before the Lord face to face when he returns. Not with shame and guilt, but with confidence. Knowing that our the one that comes to get us face to face, Jesus, is our great heavenly husband. And we long to see him, just as Paul longed to see the church in the Thessalonians. And guys, this gives reason for the purpose of our lives together. What's the church doing? That's what we're doing. There's our purpose. Loving one another in the gospel. Standing firm in this gospel. Having the culture of loving one another gospel that we might have hope to get home to heaven. That's what we're doing. Loving one another in the all-glorious and wonderful truths of Christ. That's where we're headed. That's what we're trying to do. So we can get to heaven, stand before him face to face. And so, Restoration Church, and I'm going to end this with this application. The call for us is pretty simple, right? The application is pretty simple. That we would pray for and then live out a love for one another in the truths of the gospel. We'd stand for the truth of the gospel, not moving from it. As we suffer, gospel culture, suffer for it and love each other in it, that we would then have confident hope. That is where our hope is in overcoming present afflictions and temptations that the world throws at us every day. And so how do we do that now, Nathan, you asked? How do we do that? How do we love one another? Can you get more specific? Well, guys, the thing that came to mind to get more specific, how do we love one another so that we would live in the stand for the gospel and have gospel hope? How do we do that? It's that church covenant. Right over here, that document. Which, by the way, is just a bunch of Bible verses thrown into promises. That's how we do it. That's how we love one another and stand for gospel doctrine and have gospel hope. We love one another and that document, that promise, that covenant that we made with one another spells out how we love one another in the gospel. And what's interesting, if you'll go back and read that document, you'll notice all of those promises are all one anothering promises. You'll know that. We will walk together in brotherly love, exercising an affectionate care and watchfulness over one another. We won't forsake the assembling of ourselves together or to pray for what? One another. We will endeavor to raise the children under our care and the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And by a pure and loving example, seek the salvation of our family and friends. We will work together for the continuance of a faithful evangelical ministry as we sustain its worship, ordinances, discipline, and doctrine. There it is, gospel doctrine. We're going to try to stand for that. We will, if we move from this place, as soon as possible, unite with some other church. Get face-to-face and loving somewhere else if we move from here. All of those guys are gospel doctrine and gospel culture working together to give gospel hope. Which is why I call that document, our church covenant, our vision statement. That's what we're trying to do. One last little illustration to make this as specific as I can, then we'll pray. There's one promise in that covenant that I didn't read. And it goes like this. We will rejoice at each other's happiness and endeavor with tenderness and sympathy to bear each other's burdens and sorrows. Now, I want to be clear on this. There's a, the reason why we agreed to do that is because that's what Jesus did. Right? Jesus does not despise our joys, but he rejoices in our happiness. 
But he rejoices, Jesus rejoices in not only our joys, but he rejoices in all the people's joys of his people. He came to give us those joys. That's how much he loved other joys. To give it to us. He came, he lived, he died, he was mocked, he suffered, he rose because he wanted to give us eternal joy, eternal happiness. So Jesus, we're called to rejoice in one another's joys because that's what Jesus does. And that's what he empowers through the gospel. It's what he did. And then the opposite, and with tenderness and sympathy, he bore our burdens and sorrows. He bore them. He took them on. Not only on the cross, but even now as we bring our afflictions and temptations to him in prayer, he bears them still. And so this is the shape of the gospel to do this. Right? It's the shape of the gospel to rejoice in one another's joys, to bear one another's burdens. That's the shape of the gospel. So why is it so hard? Why are some of us so slow to rejoice at other people's burdens? Or how is, why is it so hard for us to rejoice at other people's joys and bear other burdens? Why is that so hard? Why is it we don't want to love one another in the gospel in this way? Well, friends, isn't it because we think we'll lose something of ourselves? We don't rejoice at someone else's joys. We don't bear burdens because we're afraid either of missing out on something that, that we might have to take on. Or something that will lead to us kind of taking on and dragging us down to a place that, quite frankly, we don't want to be. It's going to burden our own lives. That's why we don't do it. Or we don't want to do it. Or, frankly, this one's going to hurt. Get ready. Hurts me. I'm, I'm with you in this. Or we don't rejoice in other people's joys because, frankly, we're envious. We kind of like it when people that have something that we like gets taken away. Because we want that thing. Confess my own sin to you in that. See, we'd never admit it, but we kind of like it when someone we envied was going through a hard time. Or we wouldn't want to rejoice with someone we envied because we don't want them to have that thing that we want. And in all of this, by not rejoicing in others' happiness and not bearing other burdens... We think we can then protect and promote our own joy and not lose ourselves. And sometimes, guys, in our culture, this is called freedom. Freedom is maximizing our options, therefore minimizing our commitments so as to maximize our joy. And I ask a simple question. How's that going? Working out? Come on. You know it's not. Is this freedom of not bearing other people's burdens, not taking on joys, rejoicing, is that really leading you to profound places of peace and joy? Do you have more deep and abiding friendships as a result of that? Is your keeping your distance from others so as to maximize your personal interests and leading, uh, is, is that leading to an increasingly blissful life? Is it? Does this kind of freedom that keeps you from meaningful love for others through the ups and downs, has it grown you into a deeper sense of purpose and meaning? Has it? My guess is it hasn't. Do you think this kind of freedom will be the thing to boast in at the return of Christ? No. I'll finish here. When Jesus' friend says he was the way and the truth and the life, he really was. He really is. He meant it. The shape of his life was not indulgent. It was generous. 
He would stop on a dime to minister to the weak, the powerless, the sick, and the hungry. He would also dine with the elite and teach them. He cried when his best friend Lazarus died. He presumably laughed and danced and drank wine when his friend was married, even though he never would be. He would even go so far as to pray for his enemies that crucified him on the cross, saying, Father, forgive them for what they do. They do not know what they do. And I ask, because he was so generous, was anybody more full of life than him? And so, friends, let me, re- let me reintroduce you to the way of the gospel which leads to everlasting hope-filled joy and holiness before Christ when he returns. If you repent of sins, trust in Christ, the truthfulness of that gospel, and then take on the shape of that gospel, being willing to suffer and then love one another through it, then you're going to have a hope and a joy that is going to be so thick and so life-giving and so purposeful and so true that you're going to be glad that you walk through that valley of shadow of death looking to Christ, your rod and your staff to comfort you. You'll be so glad on that last day. I think about this, about the life of this church and how this has happened. Right? The times you guys have prayed for one another when somebody has gone through a hard time. The times that you guys have grabbed meals with each other just to encourage each other. The times that some of you have just gotten a book together and you read it together. The times you've gone to hard places and preached the gospel to people, knowing it might be costly. The times you've given your money. The times you've come into community group, right? At 3 o'clock every Sunday afternoon, I'm like, oh, community group, right? But then I go, and I'm glad I went, right? So glad I went to the times that you're getting alongside of each other. When you found out the news of somebody else happened, that they got it, that you wanted it, and you didn't have it, and you were happy. That they got that. That's you. That's that's one another. That's how you're going to get strengthened. That's how they're going to get strengthened. That's how we're going to get strengthened. That we'd stand confidently before the return of Christ. Yesterday, we had a baby shower for a couple that went through something terrible. Terrible. And in tears, that couple, former members of our church, testified to one thing. Two things. The greatness of God and his gospel and love for one another through that hard time. Such that now they're rejoicing and they're doing well. That's it. There's that whole sermon. It took me 45 minutes to say that. Gospel doctrine. Stand for the truth of it. Do not let it be perverted or move from it. Gospel culture. This willing to suffer for that truth and love one another in it which then produces this gospel hope that when Jesus returns, we will stand together and be so happy that we did not move together. Our hope is in him as we live our lives out together through a difficult life. And beloved, soon enough, we'll be home and we'll be glad we gave our all to him.